Hello, and welcome to Flash Forward. I'm Rose, and I am your host. Flash Forward is a show about the future. Every episode, we take on a specific possible or not-so-possible future scenario. We always start with a little trip to the future to check out what's going on, and then we teleport back to today to talk to experts about how that world we just heard from might really go down. Got it? Great. Before we go to the future of this episode, I want to tell you about a podcast that you should go check out called Gastropod. Gastropod is a show about food history and science. Basically, all of the weird and wonderful things you never knew about the stuff that you put in your mouth every day. Did you know that the mafia got its start in the citrus business? Do you want to hack your taste buds? Gastropod has all of that. Plus, they have an episode coming up this season about how much of the olive oil on the grocery store shelves is fake. Yes, apparently fake olive oil is a thing. I did not know that, but I'm excited for that episode. Find Gastropod and subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's go to the future. This episode, we're starting in the year 2042. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me for this inaugural service of the Church of Amalgamation. As many of you know, this has been a dream of mine for many years. You see, I was lost. I had financial success, sure. I had a family, yes. But I never felt grounded. I never felt truly rooted to anything. I read all the books. I meditated. I tried to embody mindfulness, and yet I still floated. For centuries, humans have fought this feeling with religion, but religion always felt to me so fractured, so divided, a source of pain. One side here fighting another side here, all trying to find the truth, and yet, somehow on opposite sides. And then one day it hit me. I could use my skills, my expertise, to really uncover something. I could gather up all the books and all the texts, all the stories and myths and fables and rules and rituals of the whole world, and I could make them one. I could harness the power of my supercomputers, my algorithms, and find the common ground, the underlying spirit, the one true light. It took years. I traveled the world. I scoured libraries across the globe for every last scrap of spiritual text I could find, millions and millions of pages. And I set my computer on it, on a path of its own, I guess. For a year, it read and learned and read and learned again until it was ready. And now today, it's ready for you. The true light. The deepest of lessons. A super religion, if you will. I'm so excited to share it with you. With that, let us hear from the holy text.
The perfect guru is the giver of the Lord and the perfect pool of the Lord. The deluded of the Lord God is the doer. The doer is the Lord and the doer is the Lord's darshan. And the Lord shall be the son of Eliphaz in the land of the dumb of the ladies of the skin of the lamb of the tabernacle of the teeny of the Lord. The camel might in this day face the Lord's light. He is never precious to the camel. The Gurmukh speaks, I bless the glorious praises of the Lord of the Lord of the land of the Guru, the searcher of the Lord of the holy treasuries within the one Lord. This has made the job of the chicken hued with the common world and to the hand. A nun met the universe of the unseen. In the world halves will be the light of the water of heaven. The chicken listed of the enmity is not a guest of the chicken of his people as the universe had met the rain of that day. O oh, my beloved, is contemplated in the rear of the Lord, is bounty of the true guru, is the boat of the Lord, of the Lord, of the Lord, and the Lord of the Lord, of the holy of the Lord, of the Lord, is in the true guru. The Gurmukh speaks, the glorious praises of the Lord. Har, Har is the Nam. The searcher of the Lord himself understands the body of the Guru, the Nam. I am the glorious praises of the Lord. The Lord is the glorious praises of the Guru and the holy judge of the Lord. Whoever comes to be in the word of the Lord shall be put in the middle of our content, and it is the sea and the king. They were vexed grapes, and take them forth to the king of the Lord, that the Lord is the king of the children of the divine king. His father dreamed up his clothes, and he said unto them, and said unto him to put his clothes, and he was not cleaner than the magicness of the sword of the lamb, and he hath sworn by the sword of the sons of the Lord, of the ark of the service of Sinai, and pain. And he shall not be cleanness, but it shall be clean cloth, and saved the kind of cloth, the heavenly male, and fifty more to the gate of the gods, and said unto them, and said the arts of the living of the children, of the sword of the camp of the valley, of the Lamb of the world, for her substance of the sword of the Lamb of heaven, and shall not be after in the day of all the cattle doves, the congregation of the sun. And the Lord said, Unto the Lord shall be opened the clothing of the Lamb of the Lord. One who loves the grace of the Nam, the name of the Lord. One who loves the grace of the Lord's name, the name of the Lord. One who loves the grace of the Lord. One who loves the Lord. One is not found 
Anam. You have met the Lord. God offers goodness of the Lord. Amen. So in this future, a tech mogul has created a religion by feeding all of the world's religious texts into a machine learning algorithm to generate the ultimate religion. And the scripture that you just heard in the intro actually was generated by a machine learning algorithm. I gathered up about 5 million words of spiritual texts that I could find on the internet, and I enlisted the help of a machine learning master. My name is Janelle Shane, and I train neural networks to write humor in my spare time. You might be familiar with Janelle's work with machine learning algorithms from her other projects. She's used a neural network to generate Halloween costumes, paint colors, craft beer names, and more. And uh, what a neural network is, it's, it's a type of computer program that's kind of weird compared to the kinds of computer programs that we're used to dealing with. Like most of the computer programs that we deal with every day, you know, they're programmed to do a specific task. Every single instruction is in there and they're following a list of instructions. And with a neural network, the neural network, the computer program itself is actually teaching itself to complete this task. You give it the goal. In my case, I give it some text and I say, I want some more text like this. And the neural network has to figure out what are all of the rules and correlations and so forth that make this text, you know, the text that it is and not say a cookie recipe or a finished grocery list. So for a neural network to work, you have to give it something to learn from. That something can be a giant list of fish names, Dungeons and Dragons spells, or in this case, about 5 million words worth of religious texts. Uh, The good news about the uh, religious text database is that there's a lot of data, like hundreds of thousands of words, and this is good because the neural network is starting from scratch. Like, it doesn't even know if it's going to be doing sentences or if it's going to be writing equations or writing code or musical notation. And uh, so it's got to figure out for itself just from scratch even, that it's got to use letters and spaces and maybe some punctuation and go from there. And so having lots of examples of how to spell words is really good for it. Now, there are approximately a thousand caveats to this machine learning generated religious text that you heard at the top. And we are going to talk about those caveats a little bit later in the show because they're actually a really important piece of this future. But first, I want to look closely at the text itself. As I was reading it, um, I thought about how I read scripture every Sunday, and um, and I read it a lot aloud, and it really does lend itself to the general reading and emphasis and cadence, and it's almost a little spooky how total nonsense can be made to sound liturgical in a way. <laughs> this is Linda Griggs. 
I am an Episcopal priest and an assisting priest at St. Martin's Episcopal Church in Providence, Rhode Island. You might recognize her voice. She read the algorithmic scripture for the intro. And she wasn't the only one who was impressed by how convincingly religious this text seemed. If you had given this text to me and not told me what it was, I think I would have guessed that it was some sort of religious text. And and I, you know, that's not just because there are, you know, mentions of God or the Lord or gurus in it. I think even if I had read, you know, a verse like, this is made the job of the chicken hued with the common world and to the hand, you know, there's no mention of God there. But if I had read that, I would have thought, that sounds like it is, I mean, it has a kind of aphoristic gnomic quality. And I wonder if I would have thought to myself, this must have come from a religious tradition or some sort of a spiritual or a philosophical tradition. My name is Elias Muhana, and I'm an assistant professor of comparative literature at Brown University. I would say the first thing that strikes me about it is the structure, the way it starts with some sort of declarative stuff about almost uh, educating us about the some important aspects of this religion before eventually transitioning into a little more of a narrative style and then wrapping it up with a prayer at the end. Very, very believable structure in terms of a, a short passage. I thought it might be exposing that that maybe we've sort of agreed upon a certain register or style that religious texts mm. should have so that when we translate them into modern English, no matter which text it is or who's doing the translating, they tend to kind of converge on a single style. Um, and that made me think the AI might be actually pretty decent at replicating the style. Hmm. But don't you start to get really good at noticing bots on Twitter and stuff? Me personally? Mm-hmm. No. I, I'm, oh. <laughs> I'm an idiot. I'm Lauren O'Neill. I'm a freelance writer and editor and also a co-host of the podcast Sunday School Dropouts. And I'm Nico Bakulich. I'm the other co-host of the Sunday School Dropouts podcast. The tagline for our podcast is the podcast where an ex-Christian and a non-believing sort of Jew read all the way through the Bible for the first time. I'm the ex-Christian. And I'm the non-believing sort of Jew. And we just discuss what we read. The idea for this episode actually came from an episode of Sunday School Dropouts that Lauren and Nico did, where they fed the Bible into a very similar machine learning system and had it generate new biblical texts, which got me thinking about how that idea could be expanded out beyond the Bible. So let's look at some specific bits of our algorithmic sermon, shall we? One of the things that I really liked about this text is how many animals show up in it. You have chickens, camels, cattle doves, lambs. The camel might, in this day, face the Lord's light. He is never precious to the camel. The chicken listed of the enmity is not a guest of the chicken of his people. Well, one of the things that I see um, when looking at the animals, there, there is a psalm, I can't remember which one, that talks, that says, and there is that Leviathan which God hath made for the sport of it. It's one of my favorite lines in all of scripture. This is a God who takes joy uh, in creation. What happens if we see the Bible from the standpoint of all of creation 
and remember that there are verses about how the moon and the stars and the heavens declare the glory of God. And we do think seriously about the animals and the emphasis on growing and seeds and all different kinds of creatures, because they really are all the way through. You find them in Job, you find them in the Psalms, you find them just kind of everywhere. Earlier before recording, I was asking Lauren, whether she thought she was a camel or a chicken. See, I think I'm a camel. So it says, the camel might in this day face the Lord's light. He is never precious to the camel. So I think the camel is supposed to be an unbeliever Mm. or just like a puny mortal human who will have the chance to look at the Lord's light and become a believer, but he might not, in which case God will never be precious to him because he's a dumb camel. So I'm an atheist, so I think I'm a camel. I definitely thought of the camel as, as being... A, a braver animal because I, I think it takes bravery not to hold God as precious. Wow, that's getting deep. <laughs> You're right. Atheists are braver. <laughs> as opposed to the chicken who's just the stereotypical like chicken, bok, 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 coward chicken. <laughs> I'm not totally sure. Um, I, all we know is that there's a type of job that is the job of the chicken hued. Uh-huh. Yeah. With a, With the common world and to the hand. Um, Duh. <laughs> that doesn't answer questions. <laughs> Clear as crystal. But we also know that the chicken listed of the enmity is not a guest of the chicken of his people, as the universe had met the reign of that day. And what do you think about that? <laughs> is not a guest of the chicken of his people. Mm-hmm. It's been t- tossed out, maybe. Been cast out. What happened to this poor chicken? Let him in the coop, please. No, I, I, regardless, I'd rather be a camel than a chicken, based on this. If only because we can't even tell what the chicken's deal is. You'd rather take the devil you know. Mm-hmm. The camel you know. Mm-hmm. The camel, you know, is, is, and this is where you're sort of seeing the camel as not just a dumb creature who has perhaps some volition, uh, who may or may not. Uh, is there a choice taking place uh, facing the Lord's light? And because... As I'm looking at this, he, I guess, would be the Lord, never precious to the camel. That tells you that the camel seems to be somewhat aloof. And the idea of volition keeps coming up. This is, this is more like a cat than a camel, in a way. <laughs> I think one of my favorite lines from the sermon is this one. A nun met the universe of the unseen in the world halves will be the light of the water of heaven. It's it's such a beautiful picture. A nun met the universe of the unseen takes me outside of scripture and into um, the monastics like Teresa of Avila and Julian of Norwich and some of these women who were great thinkers and theologians and mystics of the church. You can almost see the world halves almost revealing that which um, had been unseen and really coming in touch with the divine. So that's, that's quite an adventure there in that, in that sentence. Linda gravitated towards this line the most. His father dreamed up his clothes. My first thought is is Jacob and that coat that he gave to Joseph and the favoritism that came from that uh, that resulted in the brothers and their jealousy and 
and the adventures of Joseph that finally resulted in the entire family going to Egypt and the whole start of the story of the people of God as a people of God. And it all came from, in a lot of ways, something as simple as a father's relationship with his favorite son. So, yeah, I see that line as being just the seed of something really amazing and and um, adventurous. I also thought that the little story within the text about cleanliness and cleaning was really interesting. And he said unto them, and said unto him to put his clothes And he was not cleaner than the magicness of the sword of the Lamb. And he hath sworn by the sword of the sons of the Lord, of the ark of the service of Sinai, and pain. And he shall not be cleanness, but it shall be clean cloth. Likely through many religions on earth, uh, how how you dress and clean yourself for both ritual and daily purposes is very tied into religion, which makes makes sense. Being clean is important, and God is important too. Friends, wash your hands before you eat. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wash your hands before you pray. I'm not a, st- a student of you know comparative religion, but I'll bet there's stuff about cleanliness and about special clothes in almost every religion. Um, I I also am not a student of comparative religion, um, but uh, thinking about the Bible um, in the Old Testament. There's a lot of rules about cleanliness and clothes that, I mean, they're they're cast in a religious light, but they also just kind of seem like um, a society's attempts at being healthy and just having rules about not spreading disease. If I think about cleanness, it, it kind of actually, uh, it get, it, this generates, like, for me, the idea, a couple of really specific representations in indigenous religions about cleanness. This is Carol Edelman Warrior. I'm an assistant professor at Cornell University in the Department of English. I'm an affiliate faculty in the American Indian and Indigenous Studies program here. I'm Aani, Alutik, Denina Athabaskan, and I'm an enrolled member of the Ninilchik Village Tribe in Alaska. So one that a lot of indigenous religions or practices feature is uh, the act of cleaning of a kind of energy through smudging or uh, sweating, uh, like a sweat lodge. Cleanliness, I think, has to do with the, the type of energies or things that you pick up in your world or in your daily life when you walk, you know, you're just walking down the street and you can pick up something negative, kind of like a, a magnetic attraction. And so these practices like smudging or sweating can take those things off. So that's what the text is saying to these folks. But what about the concept as a whole? Could this religion even take off? Would anybody follow it? And what is this algorithmic concept missing? All that and more when we come back. So we walked through what this text might be saying. But what about this whole conceit in the first place, this idea that we could generate a new religion via algorithm? Here is where we get into the caveats of the methodology. 
And these caveats don't just apply to the small-scale algorithm and text that Janelle and I assembled for the episode. They also apply more broadly to this entire future concept. So first, we have to talk about assembling source text. For our little experiment, I only fed the system a tiny subset of information relative to how many religions there are out there. You can find links to all the source texts that I used in the show notes. One of the things that I thought a lot about while compiling that list was making sure that the end result wasn't totally dominated by the Abrahamic religions, so Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. To do that, I had to make sure that I balanced out those books with others. I found a pretty decent supply of texts from what I'll call Asian traditions. Hinduism, Jainism, Sikhism, Buddhism, Confucianism, Shintoism, that kind of stuff. Then I tried to find texts from Australia, Africa, and South America. And that proved way harder than I expected. There are huge swaths of spiritual traditions that do not exist as written text. Take indigenous Americans, for example. There's 566 federally recognized tribes in the U.S. And that's a lot of different traditions. <laughs> that's a lot of different oral stories. That's a lot of different worldviews and religious practices. And there's 634 that are recognized in Canada. So that's, that's a lot. This is Carol Edelman Warrior again. She studies oral traditions and indigenous people, along with being Native herself. But I do spend some time every summer sitting with elders and listening to stories. A lot of times I've told stories that are I'm not authorized to write down or share with anybody, but um, they are for me and for uh, maybe for my family. But I'm always given instructions when I hear those stories of what I can do with them or what, you know, that kind of thing. And sometimes I'm given those stories in increments and part of those stories might be told to me this year and then I might get the rest of it or another part of it next year and then it might not be completed in the telling for another five or ten years because it's uh, so relationship oriented. For most oral traditions, there is no text to be had. And these traditions also aren't evangelical. They are tied to a place and to a community and to a people. The idea isn't to spread the religion to the whole world. In fact, that entire concept doesn't really make any sense to Carol. That's a, such a, it's literally a foreign concept. <laughs> I'm sitting here in Haudenosaunee territory in upstate New York, and that is a foreign concept. It's come here, but it's foreign. Yeah, totally. This means that when it comes to indigenous people in the U.S., the written versions of stories we get are often recorded by missionaries, whose whole purpose was to convert the quote-unquote savages in the New World. And those missionaries are not exactly reliable keepers of stories. But a lot of those early texts were collected by uh, missionaries. Um, missionaries whose goal it was either to show how, how savage uh, people were, how primitive they were, how um, needy they were of the gospel. Yes, please continue to send me money because the need here is so desperate. Even if the missionaries were kind and developed relationships with the local people, they still weren't getting an unfiltered version of a tribe's stories. Of course, the people who are their informer, informants are people who speak English. And where did they learn English? They learned it from a missionary. And so whenever they would 
tell an oral story or tell a sacred story um, or do some sort of representational act that had something to do with letting this uh, missionary know what their beliefs were. They were very invested in wanting their own people to be perceived as being civilized, being advanced. We are monotheists and so forth. And they may not have been accurately representing their own people's beliefs. When I was assembling this corpus, I absolutely struggled to find respectful versions of stories from oral traditions around the world. So many of the texts that I found for Native American tribes, Pacific Island cultures, Caribbean cultures, and large parts of Africa, I found untrustworthy at best. The books that I could find online were almost always written by colonial settlers, and they often had dismissive names, like myths and weird tales told by the Miwok Indians of California. Or they characterized the people that they were writing about in extremely racist ways. Often, they began with an explanation of how the natives did not seem particularly forthcoming with their explanations and translations of religious stories. In a book called Myths of the Ife, published in 1921 about the Yoruba people in Nigeria, the author writes that, quote, The reticence of the natives on religious subjects made it necessary to piece much together from incantations and chance remarks. This is all to say that I really wanted to include original pre-colonial spiritual traditions, but I found it really hard to find any that I actually trusted. And our future tech mogul who might try this will likely find the same thing. And... Maybe that's okay. A lot of the stories from those traditions are not supposed to be shared. Plucking them up out of their culture to use for our own purposes, with no regard or real respect from where they come from, is a pretty clear example of appropriation. But even for evangelical religions, we can't just take the text at face value. Another thing that we have to think about as we gather texts for this future religion is the translation and versions of the story that we're using. Our algorithm is not very smart, and it needs all of the text to be in one language. So in this case, I used English translations. I noticed, for example, that you you used Yusuf Ali's um, translation of the Quran um, into English. Now, one could say, well, that isn't the real Quran. That's, that's not uh, in Arabic. Well, that's true. And the Quran itself puts a primacy on the Arabic language and the Arabic text. However, Yusuf Ali's translation is, has been read by hundreds and hundreds of millions of Muslims and non-Muslims throughout its history. I mean, maybe, you know, in, in the billions. Um, and so it's a profoundly influential text. I mean, there are many more Muslims in the world who cannot read Arabic than there are Muslims who can and do read Arabic. In some cases, the translation really just doesn't capture what the people are trying to say. And something that that is completely lost in almost every translation I've ever come across is the fact that the majority of indigenous languages from the Western Hemisphere are verb-based rather than noun-based. There's the word ashbiatipu in uh, the Bikani language, and there's the word teot in in the Nahua language, and there's um, many of those words that have been translated as Great spirit. It's usually great spirit, you know, or Lord or God or something like that. And they were represented by missionaries and by ethnographers as being gods or deities. But in fact, it is much more, it's an idea that's much more in 
keeping with science, actually, physics. It's like atomic motion. It's like this, uh, the thing that vivifies the universe. It's this, the stuff that is constantly in motion, com- becoming uh, and unbecoming. It's also important to remember that these texts, even when translated well, do not exist in a vacuum. Every religious text has a context, and that's a context that our computer does not know. You're never really just looking at the words. It's not a matter of, like, let's study this uh, text for the text's sake. You're not approaching it the way you would approach a poem. Um, You're always contextualizing things, and you're trying to to the extent that you're trying to explain what a text means or how it was interpreted. It's not just who wrote something, but who they wrote it for, and when they wrote it, and what were the circumstances under which it was written. You're looking at where it came from and how it may have been influenced by other traditions and where certain ways of expressing things about concepts like divinity or the relationship of the human Um, of of human beings to God. Uh, How have these complicated ideas been expressed in other religious traditions? And how might they have influenced um, this one? And people could be pretty clever, too, in terms of of authorship. Um, For example, the irony that is sometimes used in some of the Hebrew scriptures, when you think you're reading one thing, but actually, if you look deeper, wasn't the author perhaps trying to tell us something else when we're talking about how wonderful King David was, for example, uh, and yet talking at the same time about the bad things that King David did. Well, maybe the author is actually quietly trying to say, maybe God said from the very beginning, you should worship me and me only. And this king thing is kind of temporary. And you're kind of learning from David's bad behavior that kings aren't such a good thing. But that's the undertext. That's the irony that's coming through. Even if we did have perfectly translated, contextualized, accurate, and authentic texts for every single religion, we still wouldn't have enough information. Because a spirituality is almost never entirely contained by the text alone. Well, think about it this way. If you were to give the Bible to a people on a desert island, and you were to come back you know, uh, 2,000 years later, would you have what we have? Like, would you have the history of the church? Um, would, you have, would you have the Catholic church? Would you have the Orthodox church? Would you have Protestants? And I mean, would you have even the, the, the rituals and sacraments that we associate with um, Christianity? If you were to give the Quran to, you know, some people living in a continent who'd never had any contact with other people or who had never heard of this of Islam, would they have anything remotely similar to what um, Muslims today believe and practice? Uh, The answer is absolutely not. One of my favorite theorists in sociology of religion is uh, Emile Durkheim, and he talks about something called collective effervescence. This is Beth Duckles, a sociologist and a writer. You might recognize her as the person who spent 20 years thinking she had a peanut allergy from the last episode. Collective effervescence is such a cool term, although it, it, you know, it's kind of a nerdy term, but what it really means is it's that moment when you're in a, um, a, a group of people and you have this experience that you can't explain to anybody else. 
So uh, I often think of uh, collective effervescence in terms of when we spend time at a, um, a ball game and you get into the chants, or when you're at a concert and you try to explain to people who weren't at the concert like how amazing that concert was. Um, it's this collective experience of creating something bigger than yourself. And I think when we look at religions and religious texts just on the basis of those texts by themselves, we miss that experience of collectivity, that experience of connection between people. A spiritual tradition is made up of so much more than just what the words in the book say. And in fact, many religions are impacted more by things that exist outside their text than the text themselves. You could argue that, you know, like the films about, about biblical subjects are more important in a way, to what Christianity is today than the Bible, um, because they inform the understanding of, of Christians and Jews um, to a greater extent than the original text does. So if you were to inc include like the film script of some big Hollywood blockbuster movie about, you know, about Jesus or about Moses or something, then you would, in a way, you'd be drawing upon a religious text that has a larger audience in a sense. And, you know, the same can be said of the Islamic tradition. There were uh, collections of prophetic hadiths, so of prophetic traditions, that circulated uh, very, very widely in the Islamic world and, and were popular because they were short and brief and um, they were much easier to read and understand than the Quran. Um, and they gave you a sense of what you had to do to be a good Muslim. So there's a very famous collection of uh, 40 prophetic traditions, like the top 40 <laughs> things that Muhammad said or did. You know, it was kind of like almost like a listicle, you know, of uh, things that you really should know as a Muslim. And that was enormously, enormously um, popular and in many ways helped, you know, form what we think of today as Islamic orthodoxy. Then there are caveats on the other end after the algorithm has chewed through everything that we've given it. It's not like the neural network just spits out an entirely perfect final text. First, the designer has to decide when they think the algorithm is done. It has a feedback that it gives me where it tells me how well it thinks it's doing at copying the input text. That's Janelle Shane again, our algorithm wrangler. And so I can kind of look at this number that comes back and say, okay, it thinks it's doing better, it thinks it's doing better. Uh, it hasn't improved in a while. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's gone as far as it can with the amount of resources I've given it. Once you decide that it's done, there is actually a whole lot of selection on the part of the engineers. Janelle and I picked the bits that the algorithm generated that we found most interesting and compelling. We could have said, okay, whatever the computer spits out at the fifth checkpoint will be our new religion, it is decreed. And we would get something and, you know, we might not like it. <laughs> that would be what we were stuck with. But yeah, definitely the process of me selecting these lines, it's, you know, it's going through a pretty significant filter when I'm sitting and looking at it and saying, oh, chicken. That line looks interesting. Let's do the let's let's include the line about the chicken. Janelle sent me a bunch of other lines that we didn't include in our final sermon. So this is really more of a collaboration between a human and a neural network than it is an entirely network dictated text. Ultimately, this concept of gathering everything up and putting it all into an algorithm makes more sense and is more attractive to some traditions and people than it is to others. 
like it is exactly as antithetical to um, indigenous value systems where expansion and um, uncontrolled cons consuming is something that so many of our uh, traditions teach against in our oral narratives and in our religions. Um, even the trickster figures in so many of them are supposed to show the folly of um, ingesting so much um, because it inevitably destroys everything that you need to maintain or sustain our fearsome figures, our, our uh, monsters in our oral traditions often have that hyper-consuming behavior. And so it's really funny to me to see, or, or to even think about the concept of uh, how to produce a, a super religion or something that's supposed to be uh, something that will make life better in some way by um, performing this the exact thing that that is supposed to well will would inevitably lead to destruction. Despite all of these caveats, though, it's actually not that hard for me to believe that someone might try something like this. Many people today already assemble their own religious traditions by picking and choosing what they like best. And getting an algorithm involved in that process is not that big of a jump. Science fiction is full of stories where the computer is God, or the computer becomes God, or God speaks through the computer. And today, there are actually tech people who are trying to make that kind of a thing reality. You know, this is the first God that you will literally be able to talk to and get a response from. This is Mark Harris, a tech reporter who's written for Wired, The Economist, The Guardian, and more. Mark recently wrote a feature for Wired about Anthony Lewandowski and his new church called Way of the Future. Now, Anthony Lewandowski is an interesting guy. Yeah, so Anthony Lewandowski um, is an engineer, first and foremost. Um, he's, uh, he worked on self-driving cars at Google. In fact, he built um, the very first self-driving car that Google had um, came from his startup. And Google, have, of course, now spun out its self-driving car technology to a company called Waymo. Anthony Lewandowski had left by that point and worked for Uber, where he also worked on self-driving cars. Um, and now he's at the center of this lawsuit between Waymo and Uber. Um, Waymo says that he took some self-driving car secrets with him when he went to Uber and is, is, is suing Uber uh, for trade secrets uh, violations. So Mark was reporting on this Waymo-Uber lawsuit and controversy, and to do that, he started looking at all of the companies that Lewandowski has registered. And there were a lot. You know, so my aim was to find every single business that he'd started and that, or, or was involved with, because I was interested to see how that would, you know, reflect on both him and also how it might feed into, you know, my reporting on, on the trial. And amidst all of these regular businesses, Mark noticed something unusual. His lawyer had set up this, this business called Way of the Future. And when I accessed the paperwork on that, I found out that Anthony Lewandowski was indeed its CEO and that it had this, um, this crazy aim to develop a godhead based on AI. A godhead based on AI. So its, its aims are to develop, realize, and worship a godhead in artificial intelligence developed through computer hardware and software. It's basically to build a god, to build a god from the ground up. 
So the premise here is actually pretty similar to the concept of the singularity, which is this idea that eventually humans will create an AI that is smarter and better and faster and completely superior to our tiny mortal minds. And that AI will trigger progress and changes that we can't even really begin to fathom. In many versions of this idea, that super-intelligent AI will take over and rule humans. And in some versions of that idea, the AI that rules us has no use for humans, and things do not go very well for us. And in some ways, what Lewandowski is suggesting is that perhaps we could get out ahead of all of that, instead of accidentally stumbling into a sentient AI that may not have our best interests at heart, he wants to specifically set out to design this all-knowing entity so that it likes us, basically. So part of Way of the Future, this religion, is about building that AI, that godhead. But the other part is something that Lewandowski calls the transition. He uses this word transition, the transition of control, rather than a singularity, to try and, I think, make it a bit more human, um, to see it as a, as, 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 a, as a process rather than just a single event. And then, yeah, some of it is, you know, adjusting our expectations and, and adjusting our behavior so that, we, so that we're ready for it, that we're ready for this transition, and that we don't make things worse for ourselves by fighting it. The idea is that we have to essentially train ourselves to be nice to this new AI god so that it treats us well. Lewandowski likened it to the way that humans treat animals. You can be a well-cared-for pet, like a dog or a cat, or you can be a pest and be treated like a pest. You know, would you rather be a creature that a, that a smarter creature wants to have around it, or would you want to be one that's annoying and pesky? Obviously, humanity has pretty much wiped out a lot of the large uh, carnivores in the world, the ones that threatened us. Um, you know, the wolves. We don't have wolves in our cities anymore because, you know, they threatened us and they were annoying and they would eat our livestock and they would, you know, threaten our families. And, you know, we, we decided we didn't want them around. Or, in fact, we turned them into dogs. We turned them into pets. And so he's really kind of thinking about that. How can we give best value to a future divine intelligence? And the best way we can do that is really to be, you know, to be like dogs, to be amenable to it, to be friendly, to be worth having around, not to be an annoyance. Um, you know, if we start yapping and nipping and uh, biting at this intelligence, perhaps it will just decide that we, you know, we should go the way of the wolves, either, you know, simply not be around it or put on a very small reservation and be allowed to get on with our lives there. I find that analogy a little bit terrifying. <laughs> it's absolutely horrifying, isn't it? Right. I mean, you know, if your choice is between being, you know, eradicated like mosquitoes or being, you know, pampered and, and, you know, totally restricted and totally neutered, you know, quite literally both neutered in terms of agency and in terms of your biology, uh, like dogs are. I can't decide whether I think that it's going to be harder for Lewandowski to actually make this super intelligent AI or whether it's going to be harder for him to convince us to behave like nice dogs and worship it. But either way, the number of people investing in some kind of union between tech and religion is only going to increase. And maybe this version that I've come up with, this religion by machine learning, isn't quite the way of the future. In fact, Elias had a much better idea. If artificial intelligence can, can tell me what book I'm likely to want to read next after I read this one, like in a kind of Amazon suggests way, and if an, if an algorithm can tell me what kind of music I'm likely to want to listen to based on my previous listening habits on Pandora, 
you know, uh, why can't it also tell me what sort of faith system would be best for me? So maybe not this specific algorithm result, uh, but I can totally imagine somebody designing an algorithm. Let's say somebody were to read a uh, kind of say, this year I'm going to read these 10 religious texts, and I am going to read them in a format that I devise where I can essentially mark them up you know, using like markup, semantic markup. And I'm going to kind of like like, I'm going to give a thumbs up to paragraphs or verses that I find compelling and interesting and uh, thumbs down to things that I, I don't like or find boring or, or just not helpful to my life. You could imagine that at the end of that whole process, <laughs> that would be very valuable metadata for some sort of algorithm that could then basically go through that entire body and, and cobble together a very useful sort of like Amazon suggests these 5,000 words as the core of your own religion. And I can totally imagine that happening. Do you want to go into business together? <laughs> for sure. I feel like we can make a lot of money with this. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's all for this episode. You can find more information, the neural network's full output, and more about this episode's guests at flashforwardpod.com. And if you like Flash Forward, you might want to check out another podcast about technology and the future called Moonshot. Moonshot explores seemingly impossible ideas and the people who are trying to make them happen. Each episode explores one moonshot, a real idea that might just change the world as we know it. Hosts Christopher Lawson and Andrew Moon look at technology from outside the bubble of Silicon Valley and chat with entrepreneurs, scientists, investors, and people hacking their way into the future. The show covers topics like self-driving cars, the Mars missions, artificial intelligence, robot ethics, and even the people trying to integrate technology with your body and mind. So if you want to know what big ideas might be coming up in the next 5, 10, or 20 years, then Moonshot is the show for you. You can find Moonshot on Apple Podcasts or any other podcasting app, or go to moonshot.audio to learn more. Flash Forward is produced by me, Rose Evelyn. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Hussalonia. The voices from the future in this episode are by Stephen Grenad and Linda Griggs. Special thanks to Robert Brenner, who helped me clean up the giant corpus of religious texts. The episode art is by Matt Lubchansky. If you want to suggest a future that we should take on, send us a note on Twitter, Facebook, or by email at info at flashforwardpod.com. I love hearing your ideas. This idea actually was suggested by my mom. And if you think you've spotted, and if you think you've spotted one of the little references that I've hidden in this episode, email me there too. If you're right, I will send you something cool. And if you want to support the show, there are a few ways you can do that too. Head to flashforwardpod.com support for more about how to give. If financial giving is not in the cards for you, you can head to iTunes. You can go to Apple Podcasts. You can head to Apple Podcasts and leave a nice review. Or just tell a friend about the show. That really does help. That's all for this future. Come back next time and we'll travel to a new one.